Welcome to Endless, a Sandman podcast from Chipperish Media. I'm story expert and demon on the loose, Lonnie Diane Rich. And I'm writer, erstwhile DC Comics editor and 116-year-old flapper, Elisa Quitney. Today on Endless, we're going to be talking about Dream a Little Dream of Me, Episode 3 from Netflix's The Sandman Season 1. Dream a Little Dream of Me was written by Jim Campolongo and directed by Jamie Childs. Can we at least drug her first? Get her drunk? Tie her up a little bit? She's British royalty. I love that shit. Time to wake up. In Dream a Little Dream of Me, a young woman exits a car and walks warily but purposefully down a city street at night, approaching a door beneath a neon sign that buzzes in an indefinably sinister way. We appear to be in a theater or club with movie posters. Behind the door, lights flash and faint voices chant as papers fly in a breeze that has no clear source. Before the woman can open the door, a young girl, Astra, calls her name, Johanna. I came as soon as I got your text, says Johanna. In a northern accent, Astra says that they have to get out of there. He says it was an accident, she adds, like when mom died. Undeterred, Johanna finds Astra's father, Alex Loeb, lying unconscious in a pentagram, a book of satanic rituals by his side. She unceremoniously smacks him with the book and then opens the door to the room, which sucks her into the flashing light. A moment later, she opens her eyes and she is in a cab, waking from a nightmare. As she leaves the cab and pops her collar, we learn her full name, Joanna Constantine. The old shabbily dressed woman, Mad Hetty, who calls her, clearly knows her. Look at you, old Donop. She tells Joanna that Morpheus is coming and he wants his sand. She gives us another of his many names, the Oneiromancer, one who divines through the interpretation of dreams. As if summoned, Dream shows up, saying he has business, but first Johanna goes into a glorious old church. It's probably Westminster Abbey, but it's dark. It could be St. Paul's Cathedral. You would think that I have never been to London, but honestly, I have been lots of times. And meets a thirsty vicar who needs Johanna's help with a demon-possessed princess intent on marrying a footballer. Disguised as a vicar, Joanna reads the Latin rite of exorcism, but it turns out to be the footballer who is possessed. Unfortunately, Agalea, the demon, rips the footballer to shreds. As the demon attempts to bargain with Joanna, Morpheus appears. Agaliath promises to tell Dream which demon has his helm, but Joanna sends him to hell before he can say more, despite Dream's command to wait. Dream wants Joanna to help him, but is distracted by the appearance of a new raven, the charmingly down-to-earth and befuddled Matthew, who was a human until very recently. When Dream turns away from the raven, he finds himself alone. Joanna has scarpered. Undeterred, he searches for her in dreams and enters her Newcastle nightmare. Offering to end her nightmares, he convinces Joanna to lead him to the sand, in the possession of an ex-girlfriend Joanna left without explanation some months back. At Rachel's apartment, Johanna is sucked into her ex's dreams until Morpheus intervenes. Finding the real Rachel emaciated and kept alive only by the sand, Dream is ready to reclaim his pouch and leave. But Johanna shames him into giving Rachel one last dream of happiness before she dies. Back in Arkham Asylum, John Dee wants to know why his mother is suddenly willing to discuss the ruby. He wants to know the truth about his father, Roderick Burgess. Ethel offers to trade her amulet of protection for the ruby, intending to give it back to Dream. 
but Dee thinks they would be foolish to give away a gem that makes dreams come true when they could use it to dream of a world without dream. Trying for one last all-out bid to get her son to trust her, Ethel gives him the amulet of protection. Without it, she ages and crumples and dies. Now it is John who cannot be harmed, as the guards who try to shoot him to stop him from escaping discover. Walking bemusedly through a spirographed hall of blood spray, John emerges into a snowy night with the help of a not disinterested Corinthian who gives John his coat. Morpheus, unaware of Corinthian's machinations, takes his leave of Joanna, promising her a respite from the Newcastle nightmare. Less cynical now, Joanna spots Matthew the Raven and makes him promise to take care of Dream. Matthew will have his chance to try as Morpheus relents and lets the Raven accompany him on his next stop to reclaim his lost possessions. Quote the Raven, Fuck it! Let's go to hell! All right, Elisa, here we are. Episode three, uh, Dream a Little Dream of Me. Um, we're moving deeper into this story, getting, of course, Sandman a dream on his quest, which I absolutely love. Uh, what did you think about this episode? Well, I feel a little Alice through the looking glass here because, <laughs> I mean, the changes from John Constantine to Johanna Constantine have really profoundly changed the dynamic between the occultist and the occult entity. And that said, the romance reader and writer in me is not at all displeased by the frenemy sparks between Dream and Joe. Yeah, I picked up on those too. Yeah, as a romance writer, definitely that speaks to my heart. I always love that. Um, and, you know, and I got to say, like, it feels kind of cheap every time. The way I did with the comics, I come in, I'm like, this one's my favorite so far, you know. Um, I love that Johanna Constantine is the modern day Constantine and that this may have some questions to be answered later. Um, I love, of course, the introduction of Matthew, who is one of my favorite elements of the story all over in the comics and in the show. Um, and I love how we tweak pretty much everyone's trauma here. I mean, if you're going to do horror, you're already talking about trauma. So why not go all the way? I dig it. Yeah, no, it's it, there's, there's a lot of romance, bromancy arcs in this, and I'm sure we're mm -hmm. going to talk more about this. But, yeah. um, you know, it's funny in our it, you have a great section on visuals. And I, I mm -hmm. wanted to get your take first, uh, because you are the you are the TV and movies person in our in our I'm duo. I'm a TV and movies person, but I, I'm not really generally like a big visual storyteller. You know, um, I think about the the emotional moments and the movements, but the thing is, is that the visuals represent that, as does the sound design. Which, oh my God, where we had the exploding guards and you hear John D. Just, I was wearing these, um, like, uh, you know, like deep sound, noise canceling headphones, professional headphones, listening to the, the gross, you know, squinch of John D.'s shoes in the various guard viscera. And it was so incredibly powerful. Um, really, really tough. Uh, but the visuals themselves are part, of course, of the storytelling as we. We've learned during the comics and everything. It's not just something that shows you where things are, what they look like. There is such an understanding of the story moments and how everything works in the visuals. Um, the sand effects in this are great. I love the pouch of sand, how the sand moves, um, the way we have Rachel uh, turning into sand. Um, really beautifully done. Um, but this is like a really viscera heavy episode. Like it's it's difficult. 
it is. It is. And I was thinking how, you know, we get all the body horror in the comic when Constantine mm-hmm. and Morpheus make their way into Rachel's flat. The walls are have everybody yeah. who's tried to deliver a pizza or a newspaper mm-hmm. or whatever, you know, has now their viscera and, and, and mm-hmm. they're sort of inside out all lining the walls. And uh, listeners, you cannot see, but my hands are making viscera, <laughs> viscera. I'm, I talk a lot with my hands. I'm making viscera yes. movements. So mm-hmm. we we don't get that there. And where we get it is in Arkham Asylum. We get, you mm-hmm. know, the way that the the, uh, the amulet of protection is protecting him is by, you know, inside outing everyone. Mm-hmm. And um, I love me some nice body horror. I, I, I do enjoy that. I mm-hmm. also, though... Um, I liked the framing of Hetty and Morpheus when Joe and the thirsty vicar are finishing up their business. And <laughs> they just, I love stories where we get reminded that, you know, the characters that are in the background are still out there leading their lives, doing stuff. They're mm-hmm. not just frozen backstage waiting to come on. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Also, also a big nod to Coates to the costuming <gasps> in this episode. Yes. So mm-hmm. Jenna Coleman's white wool coat dress is tailored uh in such a way i i don't know how to say this this may sound wrong i i really love her tush it cups her tush but it doesn't <laughs> overly cup her tush it's it's sort uh-huh. of it acknowledges the sweetness of her tush without mm-hmm. making a big thing about it right mm-hmm. no yes intended. appreciation without it being particularly male gazy you know yes or mm-hmm. yes or you know even vicar gazy because that even that, vicar that, gazy. <laughs> Vicar just keeps saying like, oh, he's awfully fit <laughs> and uh, <laughs> sexy, sexy Vicar. So I love that coat dress. But I, I need to say, I mean, I could never wear something like that because I'm constantly covered in, you know, dog mud and the the, the corpse of something <laughs> that they found on their walk. How is it that Johanna Constantine, with all her exorcism and and mm-hmm. viscera adjacent activities could yeah. wear a white wool coat like that. It feels very. It's clearly magic. It's clearly magic. It's tailored by magic. It's cleaned by magic. I mean, she knows what she's doing. She's got a lot of power. Why not spend a little bit of it on that presentation? Right. <laughs> it's it's true. And so, yes, I I love all of the visuals. I love it in terms of the costuming. Mm-hmm. I, I, you know, for listeners who don't know the comic as well, John Constantine, as with a lot of the classic um, occult figures, has this particular fondness for a classic trench coat. And mm-hmm. how do you translate that in a way that doesn't make you look seedy if you're a woman? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. You know, it, and you, you want to avoid that inadvertent flasher vibe. <laughs> Well, they did an absolutely wonderful job with that. Um, so speaking of which, like, let's go ahead and talk about Johanna, right? Um, I didn't know in the comic book, we had John's history with Newcastle. Um, and we knew that there was something terrible that had happened back there. I think I like I read up a little bit extra textually, like ver- via various, you know, Wikipedia type um, websites uh, to kind of get like the sense of it. But I think here we're seeing some of that trauma in Johanna and her having to deal with that. And I actually really like I like this switch. I like that we've got Johanna Constantine. I'm confused by a couple of spoilery things, like trying to figure out how all of that works. Um, but the thing is, like, it's not a 
disruptive confusion. It's more like, I can't wait to find out how they're going to resolve this for me. Uh, because when you're in the hands of storytellers you trust, that's the response to a little confusion because you know they're not going to lie to you. You know they're not going to like build something up to be something. You know they've got a plan. Um, so I'm very curious about it. The have we met line in the beginning that had that sense of like, I know we've met before. Um, so I'm very, very curious. And we'll be able to talk about that a little bit more as we move further into the series. Um, Jenna Coleman in this, I think is amazing. Uh, Jesus fuck. I want to clip that audio and use it as a ringtone. That is like my favorite, the way that she says that line. Um, said that this vicar, who is also a woman of color, I fucking love how everything isn't white in this show. That's really wonderful. And the vicar is delightful. At the time of this recording, IMDb doesn't have all the actors listed, but whoever that actor is, uh, she took this tiny part, made it amazing. The glee and delight in her face when Johanna agrees to do the exorcism is wonderful. And I just want to watch everything that Vicar has done. Just everything. And and it's also the writing. It's clear that this is a vicar who has a a relationship with Johanna. This is not their first rodeo, and I yeah. think that's you know good good writing always to have. Pe- there is a deepening when people know each other and have history. Um, yeah, I I also am really enjoying the switch, although it is giving me a little you know cognitive dissonance at the same time. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I, I want to go and talk a little about how I know John Constantine. I have actually, I mean, I've stayed away from a lot of the TV stuff. I did. I think so. I saw the Keanu Reeves Constantine and Mm -hmm. just as wonderful as Keanu is it, he was so not my Constantine that Mm -hmm. uh, despite what you're saying that no one can take your teddy bear away, it'll still be your teddy bear. (laughs) Um, You know, I just, uh, I, I could not square that circle. Yeah. Okay. So Constantine in, uh, I found this great quote from a 2013 Pace article. Sean Egger was quoting John, uh, sorry, was quoting Garth Ennis's take on John Constantine. It was the introduction to his dangerous habits storyline. So mm-hmm. Ennis said about Hellblazer, it's a comic without some loathsome morality at its core, but instead with a character who broke his own rules as he staggered through life and could only face the consequences of his actions with the same frail human defenses that are available to you or me. Mm-hmm. So I think that's one interesting take. In my head, Constantine is the kind of guy who charms you, even though you've steeled yourself not to be charmed. You know he's a user, but he's a user with a conscience, a mm-hmm. conscience that's like a faulty heart valve. It's going to have a lot of leaking. He's He's Larry David, if Larry David looked like a young sting. I mean, others may completely disagree <laughs> here, but that's how I have always done Constantine with me. I love that. That is a great description. <laughs> he, he is, you know, he is he is a selfish character. So mm-hmm. Jenna Coleman's a really interesting choice. I mean, in the Audible, I think it's Joanna Lumley of uh, mm-hmm. of uh, I'm uh, oh God, I'm having a moment. Absolutely fabulous. Uh, who does who does the voice? And but Jenna Coleman is a kind of tough, pretty. You know, to me, mm-hmm. she's young Lauren Bacall, young Barbara Stanwyck, that mm-hmm. elegant and rough at the same time. And I think she exudes that kind of you know, don't be too nice to me, or I will you know hurt you emotionally. 
it's a vibe that I think is uh, very attractive in any gender. I mean, not mm-hmm. not not healthy for to get involved with, but right. very attractive. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And you know, above all else, I really do love the creativity of taking John's ancestor and making her a current relative and a peer, which means that you know, occulting and screwing over your friends is the family business. Yeah, no, I think that that is very, very cool. Uh, Jenna Coleman, I think, is fabulous in this role. Absolutely describing her as like a young Barbara Stanwyck energy that's absolutely there. Um, But I love the way that they are working through that trauma, like that Newcastle trauma, which was part of John's story that we didn't really talk about that much, you know, in the comic. It was just sort of part of what informed him. And, you know, the idea of anybody who loves me is going to get hurt for loving me, you know. Um, which is something that she is really clearly struggling with, you know, um, dream comes in via her nightmare and says, it's a memory. No wonder you don't sleep. And she says, maybe I don't deserve to, you know, so you can see that she is very much struggling with who she is, what she's done, what she's seen. Um, and you know, and there is a sense that there are things that even she doesn't know about herself. Yes, but she's cheeky. And I'm going to go more into the Newcastle story in our Lucien's yeah. library. But mm-hmm. I mean, I think that cheekiness is really important. You can, you know, no Constantine is a Constantine if you make them too noble or too nice or too mm-hmm. self-aware, I guess. Uh, yeah. And I think that, you know, in a way, Johanna and Mad Hetty is just a lovely pairing because mm-hmm. they are foils for each other and yet there are similarities. Mm-hmm. No, I really like it. And Hetty, we just see for a quick moment, you know, where she's coming in and she knows everything that's going on, you know. Um, and so I like that she has that kind of, you know, knowledgeable, um, you know, person about her. She almost has like a Greek chorus kind of sense. She's like, let me come in here, explain this shit to all you idiots, and then I'll just out of the way and let you make everything a mess, you know? Um, so I kind of like that attitude from Hetty. Um, it's just, it's, it's a really, really fun combination. There's huge, massive chemistry going on, uh, between Morpheus and Johanna, which I really love. Um, and she's just so fun. And she does have one of these things that I really love is like that trickster energy, right? She distracts him with the Raven. Next thing you know, boom, gone. And he has to go hunt her down. You know, she goes into the house, you know, um, to try to see Rachel and talk to her without dream there. And of course, ends up falling into a dream. And that's how and she invites him right in, you know, um, it's it's so fun and interesting. And I really like the way that they've represented the story here. Although again, there's a lot of the story that I don't even like, I don't understand because it's not in the comics that we have read already. So I have so many questions going on. I'm very excited to see them get answered. So one thing that struck me as you were talking, and I didn't have this in my notes, but if I were to have imagined who Johanna Constantine would be or would feel like, I think I might have thought she was a little bit more like the TV version of Jessica Jones, played mm-hmm. by uh, Kristen Ritter. Kristen Ritter. And mm-hmm. um, and that, you know, there was a roughness to her, that feeling yeah. that she she woke up wearing the same clothes she'd worn two days before. Mm-hmm. A little a little mad heady mixed in there wardrobe wise. Yeah. Whereas, you know, this Johanna Constantine wakes up, you know, she's she's clearly, you know, her soul may be gray, but her clothes are are not grimy. Mm-hmm. And yes. uh, or her soul may be grimy, but her clothes are not grimy. 
Mm-hmm. And and so that's sort of interesting. She's she's a little she reads a little younger and fresher than I might have expected. And mm-hmm. um and yet I I think that gives us an interesting place to go with her because I mm-hmm. wonder if she is going to get a little more roughed up in the, you know, it we we we're watching Morpheus rebuild himself. I wonder if she is going to be taken down a little more. I am very excited to see where that goes. I'm really interested in seeing how they resolve all of that. Um, But I have to say so far, just delightful. Um, All right. So the B story, I guess if you could call it a B story, it's still incredibly powerful, is this story with Ethel Cripps and her son, John. Um, And I really enjoyed the way that this played out. I mean, we have Ethel also having something of a trickster energy, right? She comes and she manages, we saw in the in the sleep of the just she manages to get past all of the crowd find her way into uh, Roderick Burgess's inner circle finding her way into his bed having his son and then stealing just fucking everything you know um so I love while also being a thief and with this trickster energy and she's badass enough that she just disintegrated the freaking Corinthian right um she is a mother who loves her child you know, um, and she goes in to see John and we don't know exactly what he did, but they're talking about the ruby and, you know, I altered it. It only works for me, you know, and you, you killed all those people. Those people didn't get hurt. Those people died. So there's that whole history there that, you know, um, that we don't have, but we have just enough of that. You know, that's a really great way to like, give us some context clues and keep the story moving. Don't pause to exposit. We don't need it. We've got the general idea. So there's some really really deft writing going on there. Um, but it's such a, a wonderful and, um, you know, and heartbreaking scene. She's sacrificing herself for her son. And in so doing, she's paving the way for her son to do some real damage um, when he intends to and when he doesn't. As we see, he's warning the guards not to shoot him, you know, so he does try to save them. Uh, but yeah, we, we lose a few, uh, you know, prison guards, uh, in the process of this. Um, yeah. There's a lot of body horror. Um, mm-hmm. but in the, in that scene that you're talking about between Ethel and her son, there's these wonderful shifts. We go from mistrust mm-hmm. and this wariness to, uh, this lovely nostalgia, mutual, mm-hmm. you know, mother son recollection of his, childhood and how she used the ruby to give him some lovely birthdays and you know and then there's the final twist at the end the final turn of the scene and I am a big fan of that sudden rapid aging the we've left Mm Shangri-La and I will go see your oops whoops um (laughs) (laughs) turns out I'm 116 years old and Mm -hmm. I think that I I mean I use that in guilt because Mm -hmm. Of all, there are certain magical or supernatural tropes that I think are very resonant with our lived experience. And rapid aging is probably the number one. Right. Demonic possession is my number two. (laughs) Because all aging feels very rapid. You know, you look in the mirror one day and you're like, hey, who's that? Or worse, in my experience, hey, hi, mom, you know? (laughs) Yes. um, And when it doesn't feel rapid, it feels like, uh, you know, when, you know, other people just change and you think, ah, are you the same mm -hmm. person or are you now possessed by Agalea? (laughs) 
It's just, it's such a fun story. Like not a fun, I guess I can't call it fun. It's heartbreaking. Like, but to have at the core of what is, you know, a thief who has done a lot of damage, I'm sure in her time, um, loving her son, giving up her life for her son, um, you know, trying to protect him, uh, like against all odds, even knowing he's killed people before and that with freedom and protection, he will probably do that again. Um, I love that she comes in here with the intent of like, let's give him back the ruby. Maybe he'll forgive us. You know, and I'm like, well, that sounds like somebody who hasn't met Morpheus because he's not big on forgiveness. It's kind of part of the arc that we're setting up here. You know, um, it's just it's an incredibly touching, horrifying scene in so many different different ways. And um, I think, well, a series of scenes, the B story, um, setting us up for, you know, the future that is to come, you know, Um, it's, it's just so beautifully done in a fairly small amount of space. I mean, most of the real estate in this episode is given to Johanna and Rachel and Dream, you know, and, uh, and here we are, you know, uh, setting up some, some really horrifying things that are to come and, you know, setting up the Ruby and what the Ruby does and how the Ruby works and what John did with it before, which would take a great deal of capability. Um, He's an interesting character. He absolutely is. And, you know, I think that all of these characters have interesting webs of relationships and which kind of brings us to Matthew. Oh my God, Matthew. I love him so much. I've been waiting for Matthew to show up since the beginning. The day that I found out that Patton Oswalt was playing Matthew, my heart just lit up. I love Patton Oswalt. I'm a huge fan. Was so excited to see this. And I was not disappointed. Like I love the performance that he gives as the raven you know the raven being a black bird on a dark night like the i have to give it up for the special effects people who created that raven and gave it its expression and its bodily expression i thought that was just beautifully done um but i mean it's just like i died in my sleep and now i'm a bird you know we can't all be jessamy who was apparently perfect in every way like (laughs) everything Everything. Like, I have this entire list that is nothing but Matthew quotes because I friggin' love all of it. If I was spying on you, you'd never know it, you know? Um, and then fuck it, let's go to hell. Like all of that, everything that Matthew is, he steps into the scene. And I just love, I died in my sleep and now I'm a bird. Okay, let's go. Let's run with it, you know? Um, I, I and, and absolutely acknowledges the, uh, you know, that, that Lucienne is in charge here, no matter what anybody else might think. I really love that. So much about this bird that I love. Well, yeah. And, you know, and we, as even I, as somebody who worked on Sandman, we don't know the whole mechanism by which someone is selected to be a raven i think it's like becoming an astronaut very Mm -hmm. very few make that final cut and it it is not just innate goodness because matthew uh we will learn more about who he was he was not just the best of people as he he says as a human (laughs) i I was not the best um Mm -hmm. but yeah so we don't know the full story of that that is yet to be to be told or maybe we'll never know but there are so many wonderful sparks and arcs in this episode. And, you know, this is the classic tough guy melts when he's adopted by a stray dog dynamic. Oh, I mean, for yeah. me, except I'm not <laughs> sure which of these is the tough guy and which is the stray dog. I kind of think they're honestly both... six yeah. of one, half a dozen of the other. I mean, really, you know? Yeah, it's it's very true. And um, and I think that's what makes this trope feel very fresh here. 
If you're enjoying Endless, a Sandman podcast, then you should know that it is only through our Patreon supporters that we are able to produce this content for you. So we'd like to take this moment to thank everyone who supports us at patreon.com slash chipperish. This episode of Endless was brought to you by the Chipperish patrons who support us on Patreon at the power producer level. Thank you to our power producers, Alice, Christina, Erica, Jane, Kevin, Kristen, Michael, Rose, Sarah, Shelley, Stephania, and Stephanie. All Chipperish supporters get access to the Chipperish Discord chat, where you can pop in, meet other Sandman fans, and chat with the Chipperish creators. And at $10 a month and up, you can even attend live tapings for some of our shows. Thank you to our intrepid editor, Jack Cram, whose time and skill is paid for through your support. If you'd like to support Endless and Chipperish Media, please visit patreon.com slash chipperish and support us today. All right. So here we are in Lucien's library. So we we get in the in the TV show this whole backstory about Newcastle. And I remembered my Hellblazer, but dimly. And I also went a little <laughs> wading through, you know, the, the wiki world. But I thought, I don't remember. I have this weird feeling that Newcastle was not just Jamie Delano. So Jamie Delano was the first writer of uh, the comic Hellblazer, which was John Constantine's mm-hmm. own comic. And so I, uh, like in Jeopardy, I called Karen Berger and I said, do you have a moment? I can't remember. And uh-huh. she uh, set me straight. So in the beginning, Alan Moore in Swamp Thing has Constantine alluding to some horrible shit that went down in Newcastle, kind of like the Black Widow in the Avengers movies talks uh-huh. about Budapest. But unlike Budapest, it's not a letdown when we find out. <laughs> what happened uh mm-hmm. so we get that story from Jamie Delano and it's uh and it's basically a, a variant on the story we're given here there is a uh, a baboon dog a giant baboon dog which I believe Astra mm-hmm. summons which also by the way I need to tell people Astra would be a good alternate dog name because it turns out that every other person in the dog park has named their female dog Luna Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, it's just a strange aside. But anyway, so here we have this this Newcastle story. And I think it's changed somewhat by having Johanna be female. And the mm-hmm. reason is this. In, you know, I am, I was in my, my early 20s in the uh, 80s. And so when the men I knew in their 20s were much more, and 30s, were much more obsessed with, have I done right by the people? Have I fulfilled my responsibilities in mm. the world? Have I performed heroically? And that hasn't, I, I, I think that now I know women who have that feel mm-hmm. more, but growing up, it was something I had to, I guess, sort of wait for the world to catch up a bit, to see more women mm-hmm. with that yeah. sense of responsibility. That's not just to the family, but saving mm-hmm. those outside and I, yeah. again, this is just my own personal, you know, when people talked about, you know, have I let people down? Have I saved? And so mm-hmm. having that uh, emotional stance be a woman's still feels quite fresh to me. It, it, mm-hmm. it feels a little different, especially combined with some of that Larry David selfish con man, con woman energy. So mm-hmm. I, I think that's giving Newcastle to Johanna changes it somewhat. I also will mention that Neil has a, I 
I, I looked this up to confirm because, you know, there are things I dimly remember and then I have to check, but Neil has a Constantine story. Dave McKean mm-hmm. uh, was the artist on it and it's hold me. I think it was Hellblazer 27. I say this because I had to confirm everything, you know, and I, <laughs> I, I'm never sure if, you know, I don't trust my memory or Google very completely. Yes, right. <laughs> um, don't trust John Constantine or Google completely. But <laughs> anyway, it's it's a, a ghost story that is mm-hmm. both a little poignant, a little nostalgic, a little body horror. It's 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 a lovely story, and I think that is the only time that Neil wrote a full on Constantine story. Although he's written Constantine in a lot of different things, including mm-hmm. um, you know in the Sandman and Books of Magic, and probably a bunch of other stuff that I'm not remembering. Well, that's very cool. We're going to have to look that up. Um, one of the things that I wanted to talk about, too, uh, that struck me in this, you know, we have this moment with uh, Jessamy, you know, where uh, where Morpheus is remembering Jessamy and really kind of living this grief experience. And, you know, my question was, like, has Morpheus experienced real grief before? Um, with the exception of a spoiler for things to come, uh, you know, probably not. And the the spoiler laden area is a little different because the person is dead, but not gone. Um, and Morpheus deliberately made that choice. We're going to talk about that a little bit more. Um, but Jessamy seems to me like for an endless where his community is generally endless, right? Um, losing Jessamy was, I imagine, a really powerful experience for him. And death didn't come for the Raven. Um, it didn't come to save Morpheus either when he was in the cage. Uh, but it's really interesting to see like love and grief and guilt all raging inside of him because of Jessamy. And is that a new experience for him? Yeah, you know, okay, so I am assuming death did come for Jessamy, but that that may have been a private moment and that she was mm-hmm. not visible to Morpheus in that moment. Mm-hmm. But I was thinking about this. I think he probably has felt grief in at least one form. And that Mm -hmm. is with his missing sibling, which has been alluded to here by Lucien. So I feel okay acknowledging Mm -hmm. it in the comics. We don't know about it yet uh, at this point, but I think that's more of what psychologists call complex grief, where the Mm -hmm. grief is, you know, uh, marbled through with uh, less, less, pure emotions, you know, feelings Mm -hmm. perhaps of betrayal or anger. So I think this may be the purest form of grief that he's known. It's an interesting thing because we're seeing the change. And we talked about this a lot in our discussions of the comics, that because of the experience of being captured for all that time um, and his traumatic experience, he comes out of that cage fundamentally changed. And I think that we're seeing him sort of wrestle with all of this um, as he moves through these stories Um, in the comic books. And in in this episode, uh, we have that moment at the end where he's just going to leave Rachel there to suffer and die, you know? Um, And it is John in the comics and it's Johanna here who says, no, you can't do that. That's not okay. And then he stops and, you know, is, is acknowledging this stops and takes the time to give Rachel a, a dream to, to, you know, to die in. Right. Um, Which I think is really kind of an interesting thing. I like seeing these the trauma bringing out the humanity in a character that is not human 
Um, but it lives in service of humans, right? Does all this dream work and yet doesn't maybe entirely understand until he actually lives some of these experiences. And so watching him go through that, I think it's just, it's just really, I think, deeply meaningful. Yes. And I, I loved your talking about grief in this way. And I think you mm -hmm. often call out emotional just punctuation points or inflection points is the word I was looking for in a way that I find really significant, you know, in, in analyzing story. I want to say one aside here. You know, I, I don't know if there, there are sometimes moments where you see things played out on TV or in films again and again, and you think that's mm -hmm. not my experience. You know, yeah. one is the, the one is orgasm, you know, for years I was thinking, <laughs> oh, look, everyone in movies has an orgasm. And it, it seems to always be, you know, with a brass band in a way that doesn't match <laughs> my experience. Um, but I, I don't mean an internal brass band. I mean, you know, an external brass band. I get it. I get band. it. Yes. Um, mm -hmm. But the other is uh, the way dreams are depicted. I just want to state for the record, I have never had a full flashback dream. And I'm sort of curious, is this a trauma thing that when people have had a certain kind of trauma, they really do dream um, very realistically events as they occurred? Or is this a TV movie shortcut? It's a way of giving us a flashback encased in a dream. Have you ever had a dream that's verbatim what happened to you? Um, I have not. I think that like most things, everybody's mileage will vary on this thing. I, I have definitely like spoken to people who do have this experience where they go back and dream it. I know that from a traumatic, you know, somebody who's experienced trauma, that there are um, the flashbacks, which are, you know, waking moments in which you live through the trauma again, as though it is happening right in that moment. Um, and that's kind of something that I, as I understand, is fairly common to people who have experienced trauma. Um, but I think that uh, part of the reason, and again, like I'm not a psychologist, I've just been through a lot of therapy. So understand, take this with a grain of salt, et cetera, et cetera, um, that a lot of people um, going through the trauma, revisiting the trauma is something that you do so that you can tell your story, so that you can understand your story, so that you can go back and process it fully through. And, you know, the advice that I've seen and I have gotten is tell your story, understand your story, claim your narrative, know what happened. And once you've done that, you can go through it. So I think that some people do that in therapy. Some people perhaps like Johanna, uh, Johanna does not seem to me to be a character that we're going to see, you know, sitting on a therapist couch anytime soon. Um, and uh, so possibly that some people um, go through that, you know, reliving of the story in their dreams in order to process it fully. And I think that dreams work differently for a lot of people. A lot of people dream more metaphorically. A lot of people dream more literally. Um, but it is kind of an interesting, you know, idea. And I would absolutely peg Johanna as the kind of person who does not think about her trauma until she goes to bed and has no choice. And her her psyche just says, you're going to sit down and deal with this shit. So I actually fully believe in context of that character, that that is exactly what would happen to her. <laughs> I get you. Okay. I think now, so. You had another response to the whole, you know, shift from John to Johanna Constantine that I thought was worth, um, you know, taking a little visit to, speaking of trauma, 
Speaking of trauma, right. Um, well, one of the things I've noticed that we have like kind of a recurrence of this trope that we've seen happen in our in our mass media, uh, which is referred to commonly as kill your gaze, right? Um, Rachel's story was originally written as a heterosexual love story with Johanna's role being fulfilled by John Constantine, right? Um, and in the comics, Rachel dies there as a straight woman. Um, now, there's a lot of representation happening in the Sandman, a lot of gender flipping, orientation flipping, and race flipping. And from what I can tell, it's all done consciously and with loving intent for the communities included, which I really appreciate. I had expressed definitely some concerns about some things in the comments when we discussed them. I see a lot of them being addressed here in ways that quite honestly have impressed and sometimes delighted me. And before I start taking credit for all of that, all of the podcasts that we recorded were recorded after everybody did all of this. These, this creative team was way ahead of me on all of it. Um, so I don't want to say that like I said so in the comics and they changed the way they did things. No, they just know what they're doing. They're just really, really talented people. Um, and I have to say, like, one of the, like, race-flipping um, choices that was made is Kirby Howell Baptiste cast as Death, um, which feels like a choice that was specifically made to delight me. I absolutely love her. We will be talking about that as we get towards those episodes. Um, but, yeah, the thing that happens here is that we have a circumstance where we have, um, you know, we have a gay woman who dies. It's also a black woman who dies, so there is a lot of black trauma that uh, that often gets you know mixed into this um but one of the things that i'm seeing in the sandman overall which you don't see in those um kinds of stories is that we have more than one representation you know it's it's you know when the only you know lgbtqia plus character that you have dies then you know yeah we've got some discussions that need to be had around that right um but here we've got you know johanna is bisexual we see a lot of bisexual erasure um throughout stories like this and we don't have that we have her representation she is there she's bisexual that's it's part of who she is but it doesn't define who she is um and so I think that like, and we're seeing a lot of different, like, you know, we have the lovely vicar, you know, who was a woman of color and just, first of all, a woman as a vicar, which is something we don't often see a person of color as a vicar. We don't usually see that representation in stories. That was really fun. I feel like we've got a lot, you know, and I think that it's good. Well, exactly. And and that was the, the response that I had that since Joe, Johanna is bisexual here and she's not going to be killed. Mm -hmm. I think there's an argument to be made that to not kill any gay characters could be an overcorrection. You and I talked beforehand about the, you know, make all your diverse characters boringly nice uh, mm -hmm. is is a problem. Now, in the comic, Rachel is also less saintly. She mm -hmm. uh, he says about her in the comic, I went to Alaska for six months over the lupus affair. When I got back, she was gone along with me stereo, the telly, me silver surface, any old junk she could convert to money. And she'd long since converted the money to junk. So mm -hmm. I'm not sure why Rachel became more more saintly. And uh, it may be that she's more of a foil to Johanna Constantine this way. Mm -hmm. Another thing that might have been interesting is to have Rachel's gender flipped so that, you know, we had a male character in that vulnerable waiting, being left mm -hmm. behind position. But it is interesting. So they 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 changed. um. They changed, I believe, her ethnicity. I can't remember if she was white before. Yes. I think she was. Mm -hmm. I think she was. But um, in comics, it's not always as clear. In fact, mm -hmm. in real life, it's not always as clear. Um, mm -hmm. I just discovered Anatole Braillard was mixed race, um, although mm -hmm. that was just, anyway, that's an aside. But 
the other change is that she is somebody who steals from John. She is not just mm -hmm. someone who is an example of him screwing intimates over, you know, that he also mm -hmm. gets screwed over. So that's, that's an interesting little shift there as well. Right. And she left him too, right? You know, she stole all his stuff and took off. Whereas in this instance, Johanna left um, Rachel and left Rachel because everybody, you know, I hurt, it's the, I hurt everybody who loves me thing, which I think is a lot of fun to work with. Um, yeah. So I was just thinking about all the stuff we've loved in this episode. And, you know, do you, do you know your favorite part? Oh, Johanna and the Vicar. Like, give me Johanna and the Vicar fanfic for the rest of my life and I'll be absolutely fine. Um, I need to find out who that actor is. She was so delightful in that role. Um, and I just like I loved a lot in this uh, in this episode. So it's kind of hard to pick. But I'd say that was definitely the stuff I found most delightful. How about you? Well, you know, this is a problem. We're going to have to try to resonate to different things. But I that particularly that <laughs> moment where, um, you know, where the vicar says something like there's got to be another way. And Johanna says, there is take off your shirt. And in the next transition, we have her dressed as a vicar and performing mm -hmm. an exorcism disguised as a as a wedding ceremony. Mm -hmm. And there's just and there's another lovely little little topper there that the uh, the the royal princess squeezes her groom's hand when he hesitates. And there's a bunch <laughs> of bone audible. It's just it's just beautiful. Yeah, the royal princess is not someone to fuck with. <laughs> no, and you know, and they they do that uncertainty about which of them is she does seem like she's demonic. But it mm -hmm. she starts out is. she's just royal. <laughs> Well, if you enjoyed this conversation and would like to join in, connect with the show on Twitter, follow at Chipperish and use the hashtag EndlessPodcast, or send your comments or questions or your doodles to Endless at Chipperish.com. This episode of Endless was edited by Chipperish content editor Jack Cram. Jack, this is why you need a raven. We'll be back next time with A Hope in Hell, episode number four of Netflix's The Sandman season one. Until then... I don't get the sense that you're listening, so fuck it. Let's go to hell. <laughs> <laughs>